Welcome to Unstyled. I'm your host, Christine Barbrick, co-founder and global editor-in-chief of Refinery29. Each week, I invite a notable person to come in and talk with us as we explore the funny, inspiring, sometimes heartbreaking tales of life, work, and love, as told through the things that we wear. Here's what you need to know off the bat about Cecily Bowen. She's a writer at Refinery29 who covers entertainment and pop culture through the lens of a gender studies scholar. She's a born and raised Chicagoan who told me recently she talked before she walked. She's a strong young woman in her words and her presence. Her laugh is infectious, and she's not at all afraid to take up space. Most importantly to me, she's redefining what it is to build a career and blaze a trail with your voice sometimes simply by translating subjects like The Bachelor and Chris Brown into larger discussions of more complex issues like race, body image, and misogyny in our everyday lives. A self-described fat black queer woman and trap feminist, Cecily is just as willing to dissect our often messy cultural relationship with beauty standards as she is the latest episode of Insecure, or her own personal style, which by the way totally inspires me. Cecily didn't start out thinking she would or could be a writer. In her early 20s, while working as a national campus organizer for Planned Parenthood, she began to spend more and more free time honing her point of view on the screen. But it wasn't until she was brought on as a columnist at Feministing.com that she started to seriously consider a bona fide path as a writer. And that was just the beginning, with later gigs at Metro, Oxygen, and now Refinery29. Cecily's devotion to her personal mission has remained constant. In her own words, she says she likes to keep it simple writing like a black girl for black girls. And whether that's about race, politics, or her own unique slant on feminism, Cecily never shies away from the questions other people might be wary to ask, or the answers that might be easier to ignore. In fact, that's what makes this particular writer such a special one, and why it's important to remember that every creative destiny starts the same way, when someone finds the courage to speak up. Hi, Cecily. Hi. I'm so happy to be here. Thank you so much for being a guest on Unstyled. You are one of our staff writers at Refinery29. I am. I am an entertainment writer. I talk about all things lit. I love... <laughs> yes. <laughs> literally. Mm -hmm. I would love to kick it off by talking about your sort of beginnings and your origin story. And I think you told me early on that you talked before you walked? Yes, I did. I don't remember that, but that is the story that my family loves to repeat. So I guess in that way, you know, words were always just kind of really good friends of mine. One of my earliest memories as well as being three, and I remember my, my granny who was an educator, she was an elementary school teacher. She bought me the Hooked on Phonics program, which was like all the rage then. And I remember sitting down like with these materials trying to teach myself how to read before I started. I think it was either preschool. I'm pretty sure it was preschool because that's when I actually learned how to read. But I remember trying to teach myself and being so frustrated that I could not read yet. Like I wanted to do it so bad. And then just growing up, journaling was just so important to me. I remember like I would be at school and I would daydream about being able to get home and opening up my journal and just being able to just let it flow. But I come from a family that is very black middle class in terms of their values and was raised to always have practical, safe 
kind of career aspiration. So I just thought that I was going to be a doctor. Another interest of mine very early on was like women's health, women's sexuality. So I was always really interested in like women's health like way before um, it was cool. And um, I was like, yeah, I'm going to be a gynecologist and that's what I'm going to do. And then I got to college and I was like failing all these science classes miserably. Like I failed out of college, basically. I feel you. I was, be- I was right there with you. And that was the moment that I think I really took to gender studies courses, African-American studies, and really those kind of discussion-based classes where I was participating in kind of the flow of ideas. I wasn't just being lectured to. I didn't have to take a lot of exams. I I had to write papers, and I just started to shine. Like, suddenly, I was a good student. My trajectory in college and kind of the detours that I had to take are a testament to the way writing has always just suited me. But I think even still, even after I graduated college, I never thought that I would be a writer for a living. I moved to D.C. to like work in advocacy, mm-hmm. which is what so I worked at um, the United States Student Association. I was their training director, and then I was the national campus organizer at Planned Parenthood. And I hated it. I was so <laughs> miserable. <laughs> so I was just miserable and depressed. And Why were you miserable and depressed? I wasn't making that much money, um, so I was like struggling financially. And then also just had a lot of personal things. I was really, really, really struggling with the eating disorder at that time. It was just a lot of, I think that it was just a bad time for my emotional and mental health. So I was like, I got to get out of here. And I ran away to Atlanta (laughs) and grad school. You have a unique feminist sensibility that you approach your writing with, trap feminism. What is trap feminism to you? Trap feminism to me was, is this really kind of messy feminism that I think goes beyond even the expansiveness of of hip-hop feminism, which was a theory of feminism that was started by Joan Morgan, who wrote When Chicken Heads Come Home to Roost. Basically, what trap culture is, for anyone who doesn't know, is it's kind of like gritty, like hood culture. But it specifically came from listening to trap music. I was listening to trap music, and I was listening to some of these songs. And hip-hop and trap music in particular is always critiqued for being very anti-feminist, anti-woman. And misogynist, but I would hear these songs, definitely not all of them for sure, but I would hear some songs and I would hear the way that women were being talked about. And I I was like, there is agency here for women. And I think that people don't know to, to look for it or how to look for it because they don't, they're not able to identify with the experience of being a woman who is like from the trap, you know, like I... I'm from Chicago. I've lived in housing projects in Chicago. I'm a hood girl, you know, essentially. And that's not anything that I'm ashamed of. But I definitely think that it's a part of myself that I'm not allowed to bring with me into most of the spaces that I exist in currently Um, as as an adult and as a young professional, as um, a college graduate, as someone who has a master's, you know, in all these different spaces, that's not a part of myself that I'm allowed to carry with me. But that is a part of myself that allows me to listen to a genre like trap and be able to not just call it like misogynist trash. And when you say that, do you mean that when you listen to it, you feel a sense of kinship or a sense of just like, you know, there's something that feels familiar or at least something like that you can relate to? There's definitely a sense of kinship, but also the way specifically in which women are being talked about is not necessarily in a way that is harmful to them in, in the way that critics of that that genre of music and, and by extension, the culture, like to portray it as. So, for example, in a song where somebody might be talking about going to the strip club to make it rain, right? Mm-hmm. I think that a classic cliche critique of something like that would be that like this 
person only sees women as sexual objects that they get to go and see and view in a sexual way and throw money at. And, you know, that's that. But what does that say about women who choose to partake in like that particular realm of sex work, right, to be a stripper Mm -hmm. that you think that their client is someone who is objectifying them. Like what work has been done to understand the kinds of agency that women bring into a decision like that to do that specific kind of labor that involves a lot of emotional work, right? Of connecting with people, creating intimate desire between you and the stranger that you've never met in order to like essentially get your bills paid. And what does it look like for the narrative? What if the song actually said, this woman went to work and was so good at her job that this man left feeling more desired than he was when he went in and she was also able to pay her rent as a result of it? I think a part of the problem, right, with people who do critique trap music is that a lot of the critiques come from people who've never lived in the trap and who've never been to the trap. So it's really easy to... Um, just to be shocked by it and to, to actually have that reaction. Exactly, exactly. And I think that that's kind of an approach that I take to my writing about entertainment in general is that I don't ever want to fall into whatever the easy analysis is. One of the pieces that you wrote, the Chris Brown documentary oh, um, yes. piece that you did, What I love, again, about your perspective, we were talking about that earlier, is that you kind of really get into the the nitty gritty of of a story and really sort of find your place in it and find a way to sort of shed light on a part of it that maybe people aren't really seeing, that they're not going to see in the mainstream media. Tell us a little bit about that that experience of going to that screening. So we knew that this documentary was coming out, and I was like, oh, I'm sure that this is we, – we know that Chris Brown, despite the way people feel about him, he is a very, like, hot-button topic. We knew that people would be searching and that we would get traffic on a story about this. So I was like, I need to see – I should go see this documentary. And I was also just kind of curious about it given – where he is in his career right now. Carucci, his ex-girlfriend Carucci, had just filed for a restraining order against him because she said that he was stalking and harassing her and had made threats against her. A little, a few months before that, like late last year, he was accused of like pointing a gun at a woman who was at his home. So he was definitely coming back into the spotlight. And I was just really interested to see like w- what kind of angle he was going to take in the in the documentary When I went, I was just very surprised. It was definitely a moment of me coming out of my own bubble where I have an opinion about Chris Brown and I have made a decision on how I engage with Chris Brown and I surround myself with people for the most part who feel the same way. And I I remember just getting out of the the cab that I took over there and seeing a line snaked around the block and people with Chris Brown t-shirts on. And I was like literally just in another world. I I was so fascinated by that. Because people, a lot of women coming out and not just being pro Chris Brown, but really being huge fans and supporters and defenders of, of Chris Brown. Yes. I was very fascinated to see that there were so many women who looked like me who who were there like in support when I felt so so the exact opposite even in the theater those reactions just really were so much more impactful than anything that I saw on the screen and I 
do think that it's interesting that you said that you, you know, I found my place in the story because I do think that there is a different conversation to be had about Chris Brown amongst black folks than, than is going to be the conversation that is had just by the broader public. And that is um, really something that I wanted to kind of bring out in the piece, which was specifically about the way that black women are taught to support black men under any circumstances, how we are taught to defend them before we defend ourselves. So many cases of sexual assault and intimate partner violence against black women goes unreported because of the very like tortured history that black people have with the police. So it becomes more important to protect this man from the justice system than it does to like protect ourselves from them, right? There's no denying how amazingly talented Chris Brown is. And, and even that becomes more important than holding him accountable for the way that he has treated, but also continues to treat women and just the the string of bad decisions that, that he has made. What do you wish as a Black woman that white feminists would understand a little bit better? I think that I wished that white feminists didn't feel ownership over feminism in a way that leaves them immune. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. To critique. Do you have an example? I've never, well, I just, so I think that, for example, I think it was 54% of white women voters voted for Trump, right? And then immediately after that, we kind of had this women's march and black women were like, well, 94% of our voters like cast their vote the right way. And I think that this is a conversation starter about what an allegiance to whiteness looks like and how that is affecting our political landscape and, and the decisions that we're making on behalf of millions of people. And so many women I saw who identify as feminists thought that that was so divisive and took it so personally that other feminists wanted to have a conversation about the way whiteness was moving in feminist spaces. And I think that for me, it's that kind of defensiveness and that kind of ownership over feminism that leaves you immune to critique that is just so heartbreaking to me. For example, I am a black woman and I am a feminist and I'm cisgendered. And when my trans sisters have things to say about the ways that I fuck up and that I fail them, I shut up and I listen and I'm able to hear that and figure out the conversation that I need to have with my cis sisters, not back to them. The conversation is not for me to have with trans women about what they are right and wrong about. No, I listen to them to tell me about their experience. And my job is to do the work amongst my people. And I think that that is something that I would like to hear more of from white feminists. I definitely just think that 
if we are not able to see our own weaknesses, we will never reach the full potential. You love style. I know you do. Tell me a little bit about like what your principles are around style. Like what is the role that that personal style plays in, in your life? I have a bittersweet relationship with style. I am a fat girl. That is a self-identifier that I use. And I think that a lot of my style gets defined for me because I am a person who has to wear plus size clothes. So I think that the places that I am able to go to get clothes, the places that I'm able to look to for inspiration as to the way certain things might look on my body, they're all very limited in that way. You mentioned to me you had some some hesitations when you were coming to a refinery because it is it is known as as a kind of environment and a space where people express themselves in lots of different ways and they use fashion as a tool for that. But tell me a little bit about like, you know, what you felt like when you were coming to work at refinery. I was just nervous. I think that I didn't feel like I would fit in. And I think part of that is be so also for what it's worth, I do think that I I do pretty okay with the options that are available to me. I think that you have amazing style. Yeah, I think that innovation is just you do. something that comes with you style. You look completely different every day. You know, I wear, I have a, I have sort of a uniform down, mm-hmm. so I probably look like, <laughs> wouldn't you say I sort of like, yeah. I wear kind of the same thing every day, just with a different pattern. But you literally look different every single day. That is very true. Sometimes I'm dressed down in like just jeans and a t-shirt and the next day I'll come with like, a full done up gown yeah yeah you it's true it's true you have you have been known to wear a gown it is true yes which um, i fully support <laughs> but i think that i just felt like i wouldn't be on brand for the company i think that that was my fear i will also say that some of that is unrealistic fear i think that a lot of it is just kind of carried trauma from the way it is to live as as a fat girl and to be treated as if you never quite fit in with what the rest of the women are doing. But, um, oh, fuck that. Yeah, exactly. But it was definitely a, a fear that I had. It didn't last very long, if that makes you feel any better. You self define yourself as a fat girl. What do you think about, like, sort of the discussion around labels? I use the word fat because I think that that's what my body is and that's the way it looks. And I'm not offended, you know, by that terminology, despite the way people may intend to use it against me. But I don't think that everyone feels that way. And I think that this idea behind body positivity that you must love your body and that you need to feel good about it all the time is also something that we need to push back on a little bit. Because I think that if we start to focus too much on body positivity, what we lose sight of is the accountability that people need to have to just not treat fat people like shit. It's really easy to talk about body positivity if that means that we don't then have to talk about the very bad ways in which people who are overweight are treated in our society. And I think that that is another reason that when it comes to this particular issue, it's so hard to narrow down the right label because depending on which label we come down to, that means that some people are going to have to think about the ways in which they've been like treating and responding and reacting and portraying people of a certain size. And I think that that's not a conversation that a lot of people are ready to have. A lot of what's happening with body positivity right now is about its relation to thinness. And what we are essentially saying is that it's okay to not be thin. 
that is not the same thing as it's okay to be fat, mm-hmm. which is why, again, fat is still not the word that a lot of people, even people who are fat, are comfortable identifying with because that is still not something that we've given the stamp of approval. And I think that for me, I would love to see a body positivity movement that decenters thinness as the standard. You know, when we put someone who wears a size 14 at the forefront of a plus size or body positivity movement, what we're essentially representing is literally an average sized person. Mm -hmm. Someone who wears a size 14 is an average sized person. And the truth is, is that when they go out into the, into the world, they are not as likely to be ostracized for being overweight as someone who has sized out of forever 21 is, or who's someone who does wear a size 26 or a size 32 or someone who has to get their clothes custom made, knowing that when I'm out in the world that not everybody sees me as a human being. When someone feels okay to pull out their phone and like take a picture of me without my permission to either make some kind of joke or for for whatever for whatever reason, you know, that it is. And these are things that happen to me a lot. It's because you don't think that I'm as human as you are. It's because you don't think that I have a right to have a good day like you are entitled to have. Because you couldn't possibly think that if you thought that it was okay to like shame me for my body. I mean, I think the message that fat people are sent all the time is that we are not allowed to just be happy to exist and that that's way more hurtful than me not being able to find clothes, to be honest. <laughs> it is. It's 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 a lot, it's a lot worse than not being able to find clothes. And sometimes, honestly, sometimes we, we want to find clothes so bad just because our clothes are it's the only thing we feel like we have. Like sometimes I just want to look cute because that's literally the only control that I feel like I can have over the way people view me. We talked a little bit when we came over here about my interest in fashion and kind of why I stepped away from that. I think that talking about this issue, I'm able to identify another reason why I had to step away from that. It's because, honestly, Christine, I thought that if I had a Birkin bag, that someone would look at me and see this fat girl and they would be ready to judge me for being fat. And then they would say, you know what? She has a Birkin bag, though, and she has somehow made it into this financial or earning level that I have not and that that would somehow protect me from people treating me poorly and the ways that we adorn ourselves can be protection in that way I think you identify as queer Yeah. Tell me about what it was like accepting that label for yourself. You know, the funny thing is that I've always been queer. Even when I was straight, I was queer because I think that (laughs) because I think that sex with fat women has always been contextualized as so outwardly other. So I think the fact that I even had a sex life and I, I was sexually active very early. The fact that I even had a sex life was so mind blowing to some people when they would find out it was almost as if I had out it myself it was outside of the realm of acceptable like heterosexual like sexuality right that someone would be attracted to a fat person that fat people have desires that I always felt very not straight if if that is mm-hmm. a way to describe it but I think that me dating in the traditional definition you in mean. the traditional definition okay. of what straight looks like because I think that 
it's very important to remember that heterosexuality is definitely not just about gender. There's always, if you really look close, there are always some caveats, you know, about like what the relationship itself should look like. And it should be headed to marriage and it should result in these things and it should be practiced in this way with just one other person. You know, all of these ideas about heteronormativity are, are very much so nuanced. But I think that in terms of me actually dating people who were not just men, that felt easy. It just happened very naturally that I was just like, oh yeah, and then this is the person that I'm dating now or that I've slept with and and that this is the person. And, and gender, their gender was just always very secondary because I think that I got so used to my body being treated as already outside of like normal sexuality. Mm-hmm. My social media handle, this is not a shameless plug, I promise it's related. Do it. But my so all of my social media handles are bad fat black girl. And I think that there is something so powerful in saying all of those things together. Because if I asked the audience right now to close their eyes and just visualize the person that comes to mind when you think of a fat black girl, who is the person? And I don't think that it's ever a person that you would want to hang out with. I don't think it's ever a person that you would want to date. I don't think that it's ever a person who you see as some meaningful person in society. I think that just those words together, a fat black girl, are always so just stuffed with like negative content. Yeah, very, very charged. So the bad in front of it, it kind of works in two ways. One of the meanings of having bad in front of all of that is like a play on like the term bad bitch, right? So like, okay, so like I'm bad, right? But I'm also all these things. But also like that I do those things badly, that I don't exist in the world as someone who is not someone you would want to hang out with or date or have work at your place or be around that define what it means to be a stereotypical fat black girl. I think that's the name of your book. Say it, say it back to me. This might be a moment, Christine. <laughs> I think you should say it. I think you should say it. Okay. Say it out loud. Bad fat black girl. I mean, that sounds like a fucking bestseller to me. <laughs> Cecily, it was such a pleasure to have you on. So much Unstyled. fun. It was really so much fun. And I'm just going to say I can't wait to read your book. Thank you. I really needed to hear that. I, I, <laughs> that gives me motivation to start writing. I did too. <laughs> Thank okay. you. Thank you. I hope you're inspired after hearing Cecily's story. For even more Unstyled Extras, check out Refinery29 or my Instagram at Christine Barbrick. You can also join the conversation using the hashtag Unstyled across your social media. And of course, we'd be infinitely grateful if you'd please subscribe to Unstyled on Apple Podcasts and rate us while you're there. You can head to Refinery29.com to find this episode and more, and make sure to sign up for our exclusive Unstyled newsletter delivered straight to your inbox every week. Our show today was executive produced by Sarah Bernard, associate produced by Rebecca Easley, and edited by Priscilla Mena. Copy support was provided by Elizabeth Kiefer. Our theme music today is by the artist Koff, and we recorded Unstyled with Paul Ruest at Argo Studios. We'll see you back here next Monday when I sit down with InStyle Magazine editor-in-chief Laura Brown on navigating the brave new world of women's media.